Coming up on Tech Nation, it's our Tech Nation interview with Larry Page and Sergey Brin from the year 2000. Fresh off being graduate students, they had just co-founded Google, and it was their first radio interview ever. A bit of luck on our part, as it turns out. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will give us some insight into how far they've traveled. He'll talk about where Google is today in the area of healthcare and groundbreaking research. From Google Health to Calico, Verily Life Sciences, Google Flu Trends, and more. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is five minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Nicholas Carr, the former executive editor of the Harvard Business Review and author of the book, The Shallows. He asked a simple question. What is the Internet doing to our brains? He writes, we routinely become dependent on popular, useful technologies. He specifically used the word dependent and not addicted. I think we talk about too many things in terms of addiction these days. And even though I certainly, from my own experience, I know there's a kind of a compulsive quality sometimes to what you do online. I think the, the problem with talking about it in terms of addiction or, is that it makes it seem like it's just purely a personal matter and even a personal choice that we, you know, check our email every I can 15. stop c cocaine and email anytime. <laughs> so that That's happens. right. <laughs> but, but what that kind of overlooks is the fact that our business expectations, employment expectations, social expectations, education expectations, they're all kind of pushing us toward feeling we have to be always connected. Um, so the hard thing about, you know, backing away a little bit is that you start to feel socially isolated or you start to feel like you're endangering your career. So it's it's not just a matter of, oh, I need to quit. It's how entwined is this technology in my everyday life and can I even quit? Yeah, your employer does not expect you to continue your cocaine habit. But, right. <laughs> but he, he, he does expect you to be online, maybe even when you're on vacation. In fact, a good right. friend of mine went to work for a French company and started, unfortunately, like July 28th and didn't understand anything about August and France. She almost <laughs> got fired <laughs> because, boy, she was working up a storm in August. She goes, these people, they're not here. I yeah. can't find them. And it's like, it's French company. <laughs> in August. <laughs> and then by the time she caught up with it, she was mildly embarrassed. But we're talking about, you know, in the U.S., our culture is you ought to be present. You may have flown around the world to do a deal. Well, we don't care what time it is there. You need to be responsive. And that's certainly a, a new culture, and it's not helped by all this modern technology. Right. And it's really crept in. Just in, you know, in you when you think about it, in the last 10 years or so, suddenly our kind of workday has expanded to when we from the moment we wake up, and often the first thing people do these days is check their iPhone or their BlackBerry when I they get out of bed. sleep with my laptop. You don't think that's wrong? <laughs> and it goes until you <laughs> until you go to bed. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people wake up at 3 and then do it some more. So, <laughs> so it really has. It's unlike other technologies that, you know, we've worried about in the past, uh, things like TV – we spent a lot of time watching TV, but it was actually segregated from a lot of our daily life, whereas uh, being connected with the Internet and, and digital media now is 
all day long. And a lot of people watch their TV on their computer. Right, which is another phenomenon that is really exploding now. You write that with all the new technology, now when you read, you get fidgety, lose the thread, begin looking for something else to do. I feel like I'm always dragging my wayward brain back to the text. The deep reading that used to come naturally has become a struggle. Is that true, Nick? That is true. And that was the the original inspiration for the book was my own personal experience. Um, and throughout my life, I've been a big reader and found it easy to immerse myself in, in books. And then you know, recently in the last few years, I've noticed I'll sit down with a book and I'll, you know, get a page or two in and in my mind, you can, I can almost feel it wants to behave like it behaves when I'm sitting at a computer. It wants to, you know, enough with this page. Let me jump to another site. Let me do some Googling here. Let me check my email. And I really, not only when I was reading, but I really found it a struggle to kind of tune out distractions and, and concentrate on one thing. And you you were, well, actually, your master's in English. I don't know if your undergraduate's in English as well, English yes, Lit. Yes, so yeah. you spent a lot of time just reading. Yeah. And that would be hard for you to do today. It would. And I began to connect that disability, as I saw it, with my use of technology. I've been speaking with Nicholas Carr about his 2010 book, The Shallows. It ultimately became a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and continues to be a bestseller on Amazon Today. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we'll hear our Tech Nation interview of Larry Page and Sergey Brin from the year 2000. They had just co-founded Google, and they split the duties. One was the CEO and the other was president. And it was their first radio interview ever. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about Google Health, Calico, Verily Life Sciences, Google Flu Trends, and more, which add up to an expansive and expanding role for Google in the healthcare field. But now let's go back 20 years and I mean exactly 20 years, to the year 2000. In those days, public relations people had to call me up on the phone to pitch their clients as potential guests for Tech Nation. And when I'm talking phone, I mean a landline. You had to be in the office and working to hear the phone ring. Or I'd return a message, which had been left with my answering service. Yeah, real people answering the phone remotely. Normally, I'd speak with PR people from publishers about someone's latest book or about yet another tiny startup in the massive internet bubble or a politician wanting to get out the message that they were both tech-savvy and internet-friendly. Once we decided we'd do an interview, I would call into KQED and get what times were available. And then I'd call the PR person back. With everything settled, I'd fax them instructions about how to get here and how to park in the KQED garage. 
It was all pretty routine, except on this one day. That day was unusual. So unusual, I will never forget it. I had worked with a freelance public relations fellow several times by the name of David Crane, enough to have developed a professional relationship. He got a hold of me, and almost breathless, he said, Moira, Moira, you got to help me. I'm trying to book these two guys, and no one will book them. You don't even have to air it. Just interview them. Please, please. It took me a second, but I said, why? What's wrong with them? And he said, they're computer science majors. I laughed. I said, I love computer science majors. He said, what? But I could already feel the relief pouring back at me over the phone line. David had no idea that two of my degrees were in computer science. And how could he? He couldn't Google it. And I was thrilled. These were my kind of guys. I thought, this is great. And so on Friday, April 11th, in the year 2000, David brought Larry Page and Sergey Brin to my studio at KQED in San Francisco. Sergey was 26 years old, and Larry had just turned 27. Now at the time, the darlings of the internet were David Philo and Jerry Yang, who had co-founded Yahoo. And nobody had ever heard of the guys in my studio, and little wonder. There were already three search engines out there for people to use on the internet. And all of them were what we call post-IPO. That means they were sufficiently far along, they were publicly traded companies. So who needed another search engine? No wonder no one in the media wanted to speak to them. Where was the compelling story? Hasn't this already been done? But I didn't care. I had my computer science majors, and this was Tech Nation. And now, that interview. Stanford graduate students Larry Page and Sergey Brin wrote a search engine on the World Wide Web which incorporated their graduate research. The result has become Google, a fast and very different Internet search engine. I commented to them that if there's one thing we all associate with the Web, it's fast-moving color computer graphics. In fact, the look and feel of the web has been so impressive, it's actually influenced the look and feel of television. I wondered, how important is color and graphics and movement to a successful website? The most important thing about the web to me uh, is not all the color and the graphics and the flashing GIFs and things like that. Uh, the most important thing to me is that, say, 10 years ago when I wanted to know something, you know, maybe obscure about a topic, or just I wanted to get in-depth information about anything, I would have had to go to the library uh, nearby, and maybe I would find something there, maybe not. But the most powerful thing about the web today is that now, to any question almost, you can have your answer in seconds. And that's, that's what it is to me, not the graphics, not the flashing lights. Well, it is interesting the first time I went out and checked out Google. I mean, where were all the pictures and the flashes and the this and the sign-up and the banners? And It's a completely different look. Yeah, that's that's been deliberate. I mean, we really wanted to... We're actually measuring how long it takes people to find what they want. And we try to minimize that amount of time. So instead of, you know, the other websites try to keep you on their website, you know, as long as possible. At Google, we try to minimize that time. And so the graphics and all that take time to load, and we don't, you know, it makes the 
it take longer for you to find what you want. Now, everything is text, but at the same time, it's not just black and white text. There's all these colors. In fact, you break some design rules by having fonts different sizes and different fonts and different colors you're not supposed to, but they really play a role. How did you decide what to put out there? Originally, I must confess that uh, even part of our sparse look is due to the fact that you know we, we couldn't really afford a web designer, and we were too lazy to spend a lot of time doing it ourselves. Uh, but as it has evolved, we've really worked to make uh, the design usable. Um, there are, are some design rules, uh, probably more kind of designer rules that we do break, but there are no usability rules that we break. Um, in fact, we have two different usability experts on our technical advisory board. Um, that's uh, Jacob Nielsen and Terry Winograd. Um, and in our font selections and uh, a number of the details of our interface, uh, we've actually carefully studied, you know, how do those, these fonts appear on, you know, the 10 most common platforms? Um, are they readable? Are they legible? Things like that. I was asking some questions, actually, the day before I tried Google and on the web. And um, it took a long time for things to come up. Depending on where I was, I got kind of different successful answers, or it was clear they didn't get it. Then I went to Google, and the first thing that hit me was how fast the answers came up. Does that have to do with the search engine itself, or does that have to do with the fact you don't have 15 uh, sections and ads and, and pictures? Well, it's, it's a combination of both. I mean, we we um, keep very careful track of how long the search engine itself takes, and the queries, uh, we average about a half second per query, which is very fast. But we also are very careful in our network traffic, you know, how we buy our network and where we put our machines and how we design our interface to make all those things fast as well. So we do, we, we pay a lot of attention to that. Now, how do you know somebody got the right answer and got out versus they, uh, they said, well, forget it and got out? I mean, we have some idea. We do collect like samples of what people click on and things like that. So that gives us some idea of whether we're doing a good job. But we also do our own internal testing where we take sort of a random sample of our queries and run them and, and try to analyze what happens, you know, is this likely to have uh, filled people's needs? Well, certainly if they never click through to one of the websites you offer, presumably they didn't get an answer. Well, it's not quite that simple. but uh, It's never that simple no. with your voice. Everybody sticks with this interview. We'll learn that. Right. <laughs> okay. Tell me about it. Well, I mean, it might be you got your answer in the actual search results themselves. Like you might just be wondering whether something even sort of exists on the web. So you type a query and, you know, you get back five things and you, you scan them and you say, oh, it doesn't really exist. And that might make you happy, right? Um, or it might be you got your answer from the snippets we provide. Um, we try very hard to give you the right information on the search page itself. So we show you when your query matches um, in the document, we show you the matching parts of the document rather than showing you, you know, the first three lines or something like that. We actually show you the exact part of the document that matches your query. And that's very useful. A lot of times that can give you your answer. So you don't have to look at the document. Well, it, that is an interesting thing that, that uh, in terms of providing information. So I couldn't help myself. I typed in Tech Nation, <laughs> got a mere, you know, 3,700,000 responses. But <laughs> unlike a lot of other engines, instead of getting here's the here's the name of the websites and little descriptions they did, I could tell by looking that maybe 
half of them or 40% of them weren't right because the context was wrong. And I could do that in a split second. I could do it in a scan. And that's sort of what humans are good at. So I, mean, I think that's part of what you're trying to do here is to figure out where's the human part and where's what can technology do. Yeah, I think that's a fair description. Absolutely. And uh, we try really hard to produce the best search results, but then, you know, we can't always be 100% right. So we try to give you the best possible information for you to make your own choice. You're listening to Tech Nation, Americans and Technology. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google, a popular search engine on the World Wide Web. Well, you know, Google's out, and it's getting some some fascinating reviews. But at the same time, People must have thought you were crazy when you said, we're going to build a search engine. Didn't people say, well, there's Excite and there's Ask and there's this and there's that and there's AltaVista. Why would you think you can leap in and build a search engine? Well, it was actually that didn't happen because we already had one that was significantly better than anything else. So in fact, um, in September of 1998, when we started our company, we'd already been working on Google for several years. And we already had a working system that maybe 10,000 people a day used, and it was growing very fast. So in fact, um, everybody we approached to invest in the company said, yes, yes, I'd like to invest. And then we actually had to pick between them. Well, how could you possibly afford to sit down and write a search engine? We were both PhD students uh, at Stanford in the computer science program. And this is just you know one of the many things that we researched at the time uh, was you know Larry was collecting web data to see what he could do with it. And I was data mining, which means analyzing large amounts of data. And so we got together and we said, well, what can we do with this, this, all this web data? And we did lots of things, actually. We played around with it in different ways. And pretty soon we realized that we had a pretty powerful application in search uh, for the technology that we developed and that it worked better than uh, the existing search engines at the time. And so then we went, went ahead and developed it further and try to see how far we could push it. Now, everyone's going to want to know, what's the difference between what you guys do, besides just displaying mm -hmm. these characters somehow, and the other search engines? What's the difference? Well, inherently, it, it does go back to that data mining aspect. Uh, when Google looks at the World Wide Web, um, when we download all the content, it looks at all the content uh, as a whole. That means that the answers to your query depend not just on the pages that happen to match your search terms, but all the pages on the web contribute to your search results. So essentially, uh, Google search engine learns from the entire web so that it can answer your specific queries. So what does it do? It takes all the text from the whole web? There are several different things it does in this uh, respect. Uh, one has to do with links, which is our first technology that we developed and still one of the most important ones in our search engine. That's our analysis of the entire link structure of the web to figure out which web pages are the important ones? Which ones would you want to see listed first? And in that situation, as I said, every single web page affects sort of the importance ranking of every other single web page, uh, only to a very small extent. Other people have tried things like, you know, counting the number of links to a web page and things like that. Um, sort of simplistic techniques like that tend not to work. And we had to develop a fairly complex model for what people mean when they link from one page to another and what significance that should carry uh, in order to get a really accurate ranking. So are you tracing how people link or the fact that the link exists? Uh, the fact that the link exists. Not, not, not to people clicking on the links, but the webmasters who you know give careful thought about what they're going to put on their web pages. 
um, we look at that. Uh huh. Okay. Well, then what else do you look at? Um, on top of that, when Google examines a web page, we look at all the words on the page, exactly where they are, um, whether in the same sentences, close together, and so forth, um, which things are in headers, uh, like uh, headings, I should say. And we even look at the text of nearby pages in sort of in the web space to get a better idea of what the page is about. And getting all those factors to come together with the, the link-based computation, which we call PageRank, that's hard process in itself. And we've worked hard to make that work well, too. Now, you can't sit down every time somebody asks a question and sort of load the whole web and scan it and figure out what's pointing to what. What do you do? Do you have it already loaded in, or do you uh, check the web every day? What do you do? Yeah, well, actually, um, all search engines basically have to download the web regularly. So most people, I think, have this idea that search engines go out and they, they when, when you do a query, they go out on the web and they find what you want. And that's not really what happens. What really happens is, you know, over the past, you know, couple of weeks, they've been downloading the web. So we, we download, you know, the entire web, or a good part of it. We download about 200 million web pages currently. And we store those on disk. So we have about um, 3,000 computers now where we store um, this chunk of the web and our index. And then we search that um, when you do a query. So you're building up a pretty, pretty sophisticated index. And it's the index that you look at when I ask a question. That's right. Are these things that nobody ever did before? They never did it to the extent that we do it. The amount of information that's in our index is much more substantial than anyone else's. But all the other search engines build an index of some form. And that amounts to essentially taking the entire World Wide Web or whatever portion of it they index and sorting it, you know, going through and sorting all the text. And computer science, of course, one of the things you study is sorting. And this is one of the largest sorts that you can do. So do you have to just take a long time? You have to do this all offline and then reintroduce it? Is that how that happens? Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it can be done in a matter of days. Um, it's not with 3,000 computers in a matter of days. Yes. That's... You know, they used to send people <laughs> to the moon with that kind of stuff, but now we, <laughs> we just have a few Google references. Yeah. <laughs> now, there are inevitable comparisons between uh, you, you guys and uh, Jerry Yang and David Philo, who were also graduate students at Stanford, and then uh, talked to the VCs, and Yahoo eventually came out of that. What's sort of different between the scenario or the, the popular story of Jerry and David and you two? Um, well, let me start by telling you that uh, one major difference is that they came long before us. And we've had the fortune of learning from their experience. And we actually talked to David and Jerry from time to time. They've given us really great advice. Actually, David, as part of the reason why we started the company, he encouraged us to start Google. That's right. Now, I think there are other differences. You know, uh, We're really focused on developing great technology specifically for search. Yahoo's a broader, much broader company. Also, in terms of our, our history, I think that Google was developed out of the research that we were working on at Stanford, Larry and I, uh, whereas I think Yahoo came out of, you know, trying to avoid working on research at <laughs> Stanford, <laughs> which, is, which is fair. I spent I a lot of time doing that, David is going to get his too. degree, actually. <laughs> but Jerry, no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but anyway, I think there's, there's a lot of similarity in that Yahoo has always focused on quality in everything that they do. And that's that's something we've tried to imitate um, and tried to be quality. You know, in our website, 
in our hiring um, and in every part of our business. Well, you know, in terms of PhD candidates, uh, you have to publish. You have to publish to get your degree. Most people don't understand that. They think you write a dissertation, do some research in the back room for a while, and finally your friends see you again, and you publish a dissertation, and you go through graduation. But part of it is you have to publish. And I know that you had individually and collectively published a number of research papers. Were they all on this type of methodology? Well, for myself, um, I, I published like a probably over a dozen different papers in all different areas. But some of them were specifically on the technology uh, in Google. And I think particularly Larry and I published a paper called, I think it was The Anatomy of a Hypertextual Search Engine. Uh, a real and... seller of a name. A real <laughs> seller of a name. Academia, what can I say? <laughs> and is that close? That discusses the Google technology, or at least what we had back then, um, in great detail. And people really thanked us because it was really the first paper that explained how web search engine works in the kind of detail that we went into it. Now, here we have it. You have to publish. What do you do about proprietary technology? I mean, where do you come down on that? Is this, you just happen to be the first ones out there? Or are you trying to keep your techniques to yourself? One of the reasons we really started the company was that we didn't think that anyone was going to focus on search. And we had the benefit of talking with a lot of the search companies early on. And you know, we realized, and they said, oh, we don't really care about search. And we're like, that seems kind of crazy. You know, search is the number one application on the web, you know, and it's going to get much better. So we had sort of the computer science vision, I guess, that things weren't being done as well as they could be. So we see our long-term sustainable advantage is that we know how to do these things better than anyone else. And that means we hire lots of really smart people. And actually, the, the published papers have really helped us do that. You know, there's a lot of people in the you know research communities that have read the papers and they say, oh, these guys, you know, are pretty smart and they're doing interesting things. Maybe I should work there. Well, that, that's another thing that, that, to point out about how many smart people are around. Uh, you were mentioning that Terry Winograd and, uh, and Jacob Nielsen were on your advisory board. Who else is on your advisory board? Uh, we also have my advisor, uh, Jeff Ullman. And we also have Rajiv Matwani, both Stanford faculty who have been very, very helpful with Google. So you got to get smart people and just be out in front. Um, absolutely. We That's have a now. good plan on Any, in, in anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I mean, for some things, it matters less than for others, truthfully. I mean, there are other kinds of websites, you know, if you're selling pet food online or something like that, you know, the technology is not as important. But in our case, it is very important. And we probably have close to 20 PhDs now um, on our team. We have about 100 total people in the company, and more than half are in engineering and we have a research group that's a separate part of engineering, which is very unusual for a company our size. But going back to your question, I mean, there, there are two ways you can focus a technology company. You can try to develop internally your own technologies and keep them really secret and proprietary, which, you know, there are good reasons to do. Or you can try to, you know, push the technology really fast, tell lots of people about, about it, um, get a lot of contribution to it, and... Uh, just drive faster than anyone else who is now, you know, reading what you've done um, and uh, trying to catch up to you. And I guess there's no reason the other search engines can't pay you for your technology. Um, that's, that's true. true. Like, uh, um, they certainly could. Um, anyway, we haven't chatted specifically with them about it. Uh, as I said, I we're pretty focused on on keeping driving forward and rather spend my energy that way.
You've been listening to our 2000 interview with Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google. We'll continue after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about Google Health, Calico, Barely Life Sciences, and Google Flu Trends, and all things Google in the healthcare field. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation and our interview from the year 2000 with Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google. My guests today are Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the CEO and president, respectively, of the popular search engine Google on the World Wide Web. I'm Moira Gunn, and you're listening to Tech Nation, Americans and Technology. Okay, so how big is a Googleplex? <laughs> Uh, Google actually is 10 to the 100, so that's one followed by 100 zeros. And a Googleplex is 10 to the Google, so that's one followed by, you know, a Google zeros. So and, where do you go from there? Um, it's kind of hard to say, I think. In the Googleplicity universe. <laughs> I mean, I, Google was designed, I mean, it was coined by a mathematician's son. Nephew. Um, nephew, sorry. Yeah. And the idea is that it's bigger than anything you can think of in the real world. So it's like bigger than the number of molecules in the universe or anything you can think of. Well, you know, this is another difference between you and Yahoo. <laughs> like everybody knows what Yahoo means. <laughs> How many people get the Google? I mean, is that something you have to kind of explain to people? Uh, you need to explain it to most people. Of course, most mathematicians know it. Well, um, I was an old math sort of, major, so yeah. I knew it. But Yeah. Uh, and just... Yeah, so so I think there are a fair number of people who use our site who do know it without even having to read it. But uh, probably more than half the people, we, we, we have to explain it. How did you decide to call it Google? Well, we I was sitting around in my office at Stanford, actually, and we were looking, we were trying really hard to think of a name for the search engine. 
and we've gone through like hundreds of things, I don't know, maybe more than that. And we, we somehow ended up looking at large numbers, and we got to Google, and we we're like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. One something that was sounded fun, like Yahoo does, that'd be six letters or less, and be fairly easy to remember and type. And so Google seemed to fit those criteria. Yeah. Also, the domain name was available. Yeah. That helped. I bet you there's a lot of domain <laughs> names out of math and physics that are available. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't be so sure these days. You'd be amazed at the kinds of things that are taken. Given the, you know, you're pre-IPO. You haven't gone public yet. It's still privately right. held. You've got your investors. Um, is there any rush to go IPO with all this crazy market? Well, I think to the extent you want to build a sustainable company, that actually slows you down with regard to IPO a little bit. The main disadvantage to IPOing is that it's harder to hire people. So if you expect, you know, your company to be a long-term um, sustainable corporation, which is what, what our goal is, um, we want to make sure we've got enough people and we've, we've got our sort of ducks in order uh, before we go public. So that's probably the main reason not to. Um, we're actually very efficient with spending our money. We raised, you know, about $25 million. And Google has grown incredibly fast, you know, about 25% per month since we started without doing really any marketing. Um, so our costs have been much, much lower than a lot of other dot-coms. So we have no, you know, immediate need for money either. Now, what's your uh, revenue model? Uh, we have two primary sources of revenue. Uh, the earliest one that we started out with is our corporate uh, co-brand revenue. So we have customers such as Netscape and the Washington Post and Red Hat and Virginet. And I think that's actually about 100 customers now. Um, and they OEM our search engine and provide it to their users on their site. And the second source of revenue, which we only launched last quarter, is our advertising on our own site. And a lot of people haven't seen it, actually, because we only ran it on a small percentage of, uh, of our search results. Uh, but the ads are unique in that they're text-based, so they're quick to load. Um, they're always targeted to your search topic. Uh, and we're really trying to provide a, a good experience for the user through the ad program by giving them even more useful information. Um, and the advertisers are very happy with that because, you know, now the users are interested in whatever it is they're showing them. And, and the ads perform very well. They get a high click-through. So your ads are minimalist, too. That's right. I yeah, as opposed I, to say, I like to contrast this with, like, a flashing drink Coke ad, <laughs> which probably wouldn't relate at all to what you were searching for. So when people are searching for things, they're very demand-driven. They want something in particular. And so giving them an ad that's really related to what they're searching for is very successful. I think what you've just done is you've, you, you're, you've defined the swing of the pendulum. It's like it's it's coming back because people want it and they want it now. And we've put up with all of this time delay on the web. And they think, oh, when the bandwidth gets bigger, when the whatever. It's like, you mean, even with the current bandwidth, I can get it fast? I want it. You know, so I, I think you're, you really touched on something there. Yeah, actually, even if the page loaded infinitely fast, there's still time that's needed for you to process what's on the page. And there's lots of research that shows this, but the more choices you have, the longer it takes for you to make a choice. What do you go to from here in terms of your research? Is there, is that, are you going to do more research or are you just so busy with your company? Um, well, we're getting more and more researchers on board. So I hope we're going to do more and more research. Uh, the way we view search is that a perfect search engine will be 
uh, we'll, we'll know everything and we'll be able to re relate your question to it perfectly. Kind of like uh, HAL 9000, 2001. So, so your search oh, engine will be here yeah. for the interview the next time you come back? Yeah, that's, that's right. Ideally, only, uh, unlike HAL, probably we'll try to make it not kill you. Um, Thank you I very much, Sergey. <laughs> <laughs> no, not <laughs> in general, the user. Get that bug worked out before you bring him in, if you would. <laughs> um, but uh, I think in general, search is an arbitrarily hard problem. And there's lots of work that remains to be done on it. And so when are you going to get your we'll PhDs? Um, I actually, I still hope to get mine. Uh, and I think, you know, in a few years' time, I'll be able to take the time to do that. How about you, Larry? Yeah, I think so as well. Well, I think your experience may just warrant getting a PhD just for that alone. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it works that way. Currently. Yeah. <laughs> too bad. Too bad. Well, Larry and Sergey, thank you so much for joining me. And please come back and tell me what's, what's happening in, in a while. Thank you, Moira. My guests today are Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google, popular search engine on the World Wide Web at www.google.com. You're listening to Tech Nation, Americans and Technology. It's been a long time since I listened to that interview. I'd forgotten that these people we had affectionately called the Google Boys and the Yahoo Boys around Silicon Valley actually knew each other. And of course they did. They were all in their 20s, all out of Stanford, and Silicon Valley is really a very small place. Surprising for me is that I can now peg exactly when I first used Google, and for that matter, when I first Googled Tech Nation. If you notice the intros and outros, as we call them in the trade, Tech Nation still had the tagline, Americans and Technology. Sometimes, shortly thereafter, no doubt, we would simply become Tech Nation. I mean, with the Internet, everything was global, and everyone was connected to everyone. We weren't just talking about Americans anymore, and our program could be heard everywhere as well. And David Crane... Whatever happened to him? Well, remember when Larry and Sergey had likened the Google search capability to the HAL 9000, the artificial intelligence computer in the movie 2001? And then I asked, so your search engine will be here the next time you come back? And Sergey responded, ideally, only unlike HAL, we'll try to make it not kill you. If you listen closely, you'll notice about two seconds of absolute silence, which is precisely when I looked up through the window into the engineer's booth, and there was David Crane, sitting on a high stool, his face buried in his hands. I'm willing to bet that this was the first and last time Sergey made a public remark about Google trying its best not to kill anyone. But what you were really listening to was a frequently referenced computer science inside joke. But don't fret for David. He went on to become employee number 84 at Google, where he became the director of global communications and public affairs. And today, he's the CEO and managing partner of GV, previously known as Google Ventures, the venture capital investment arm of Alphabet. And what is Alphabet? The parent company of Google. Sometimes you just can't tell the players without a program. And David, let me know if you need anything. Always happy to help. 
We're all familiar with the impact of Google, not only in our everyday searches, but also in those ad words appearing again and again with every new result, brand spanking new at the time of our interview. We also experience Google just beneath the surface, yet recognizable just the same. It's behind the scenes in searches on seemingly unrelated websites. It's in Google Earth and Google Maps for who hasn't seen a Google car driving around their neighborhood. And even if you haven't, where did that image of your house come from? Of course, this list can go on and on, but today... Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will focus on Google's efforts in health and healthcare. Well, Daniel, welcome to Tech Nation. Great to be back. Well, I have to say, you know, Dr. Google, that's what they call it. Why do they call it Dr. Google? Well, I think it's the fact that any of us now, physicians like myself included, when you might have some symptom or question about your own health or your friends and family or some research topic, you go right to Dr. Google and you go, oh, oh. I've got abdominal pain. You might search for abdominal pain or headache, and it gives you uh, increasingly better and better results. And as you heard from even way back when from Larry and Sergey, their idea was to consolidate the world's information. And there's a lot of information in healthcare, and Google's become a very key trend and tool for finding that. Interestingly, uh, the, the most top searches in 2019 included what is keto, including a ketogenic diet, how to get rid of hiccups, a chronic problem, I guess, <laughs> and how long does the flu last? So, um, you know, these are common questions. And even just from looking at the Google searches alone, you can hotspot where might be flu. Um, Google did a project called Flu Trends. You could tell specifically by who and where people were searching for flu remedies or cough or symptoms, who was getting what where. And here in the era of COVID, now that we're in May of 2020, uh, the searches being done on Google to help find local test centers or understand the symptoms as they're evolving are all becoming very, very useful. What I really like is the idea is that you are going through to get real information. For instance, people go right out to PubMed or link you out to PubMed, which is part of the National Institutes for Health, National Library of Medicine. Right, absolutely. I, I use that all the time. Or for folks who are inventors, there's Google Patents. There is the Google, data, Google Database tool, which can be used for finding uh, biology and medical and physical chemistry databases as a small set of examples. So we really are evolving search. And, and Google, to their credit, and you know, based, I think, on the vision of, of both of the founders who we just heard from in the early days, have really uh, helped push that company to go well beyond sort of traditional search to a set of whole other tools. And they started, I think it was 2008, with their first sort of version of Google Health, which was sort of the ability for any individual to opt in and start to share some of their vitals and their med list, sort of a bit of a, a virtual personal health record. Um, it wasn't a great success, partly because just because you stored all those things on a virtual pin board, it didn't really help guide your care or help your doctor or medical team uh, do much with that. So that was sort of wound down. But more recently, uh, we have the sort of next evolution of Google Health. Um, and they're doing many powerful things, including, you know, improving the search technology. So when you search for gallstones, you get the right information, um, but are starting to now leverage big data, machine learning, and are partnering with big healthcare systems, uh, Google with Ascension Health, for example, uh, which has 150 plus hospitals, could look at millions of medical records. And that raises the question of, should Google have access to your medical records? Who owns the data? Uh, what's the power of, of big players from Amazon, Google, Facebook, and beyond to, to even if it's de-identified data, to make use of that. 
I would argue, and we've talked on prior episodes about the power of being a data donor, that helps us build the better, quote unquote, Google Maps for health. Um, and if we can kind of get through some of the privacy concerns, it can build a much better uh, healthcare system and information for, for all of us. Of course, de-identifying. If we have your DNA, we have you. <laughs> well, that's part of it. You can now opt in uh, to, to donate your DNA in a variety of forms, uh, potentially upload that. What if your Google searches were driven by your genetics? And now we're just entering this era where that data isn't just the fancy omics and the lab data you go when you visit your primary care doctor or the emergency room, you know, that small intermittent amount of data we pick up or vital signs or labs or EKG, but now the ability to collect that from our, you know, Google Android devices or our iPhones, our connected homes, and to get an idea of what our sort of digital health fingerprint looks like in the setting of both health and disease. So one of the very interesting alphabet, you know, now the new evolution of Google's alphabet, one of its spinoff companies is called Verily. Um, and they are, you know, subsidiary of, of, of now Alphabet or Google, they're doing some very interesting things. Their most fundamental project is called the uh, Baseline Project, which there's, sort of aims to construct a quote-unquote Google Earth-esque bird's eye view of human biology and health and disease. And they've started off with about 10,000, I think now more volunteers. You can go to the Verily Baseline Project website and sign up to be a volunteer and start to understand by sharing your basic health information, maybe the information from your Fitbit or your connected scale, what's happening with your digital exhaust. And they've even rolled out their own now FDA-cleared watch that can pick up um, vital signs and EKG and beyond and start, start to build that map of what's normal for you and what's abnormal and what does it look like for the folks who are uh, developing heart disease or diabetes or Alzheimer's disease. So we can start to map and then again be proactive. And it's the early stages the National Institutes of Health is doing a similar project called the All of Us Trial. But it's really an exciting time where now information can be gleaned from many elements put together. And we can hopefully then learn and apply that information for prevention and wellness and health span to picking up disease early, diagnostics. And then when you have a disease from cancer to emphysema to depression, to find the therapies that really match you and have the feedback loops in our sort of digital connected age. Well, there's a number of things I find interesting about Verily Life Sciences. One is that it's not just on the life science side. These really, It's really an engineering approach. It's where engineering and science comes together to build things. That's really important. A, a, a Another place that comes to mind when engineering and science comes together is called NASA. This is why these these combined mindsets are so powerful. Yeah, it's this super convergence. Um, it you know, Verily was a spin out of, of Google X, and okay. X is a place where engineers come together to solve you know uh, solve for X, and often these high grand challenges. One of the projects that came out of that was Google Glass, which was not a big uh, consumer. Let's say hit. a technical success, but not a social success. <laughs> Yet it is its best use case has actually been in healthcare, where there's now new versions of Google Glass, where a primary care doctor can be wearing a glass and uh, come into the patient's room and see data about them, can record the visit, have a scribe watching with permission, writing the visit down and scribing it so the patient, so the doctor doesn't need to spend as much time charting. So that's one example. Uh, uh, that's, you know, this new era of blended augmented and virtual reality. So some, some things that start out of Google with other applications have come into healthcare. Um, you mentioned, I think, uh, you know, uh, diseases like Parkinson's. Verily is doing a project where you can uh, look at both the molecular 
path pathways, the brain imaging, uh, use wearable devices to look at a Parkinson's patient. What's their tremor like? What time of the day? How might you adjust their medications? They even bought a company called Liftware that makes a special spoon that takes out the tremor in someone's arm or hand so they can feed themselves. So there's really interesting convergences that can be done uh, when you have scale, you've got engineers, you've got data, and you've got big funding to address challenges like Parkinson's at scale. It's been amazing the number of people, the quality of the people that Verily has gone out and recruited to hire. Yeah, my, my, my friend, Dr. Jessica Mega, she's a Harvard-trained cardiologist. She was a big scoop. She came over as her chief medical officer. Uh, the former um, FDA commissioner is now on their team um, as well, Rob Califf. Um, they've got a pretty amazing team led by Andy Conrad, who's a PhD, I think, geneticist to start with. And so the part of the power of, of Google and the spin-outs is they've attracted amazing talent. They've leveraged a bunch of their tools now from, from Google Cloud to machine learning to the fact that they're touching consumers all the time uh, to come up with some interesting new solutions. It, it's sometimes hard to think, you know, what are the products that have come out? Um, I think we're still at the early stages of where the Googles and Apples and Facebooks and Amazons are going to go. I think I would argue that they're going to become part of our fundamental base layer of health and medicine going forward. Okay, so what else about Google and health? Well, one interest of many folks is, is uh, living longer and more healthily, <laughs> uh, health span. Uh, one of the well-known spin-outs, which is still arguably a bit in stealth mode, is called Calico. Um, they've been looking at, at longevity. And uh, from what I understand, part of their mission is understanding, let's say, the genetics of folks who have been super centenarians. Who's 100 years old and pretty healthy? Can we understand their genetics? What are the molecular pathways? Um, how might we leverage that to develop new prevention tools, drugs, and beyond to understand the biology of aging. Um, they've got folks on their team ranging from famous scientists like David Botstein and Cynthia Kenyon, who helped uh, figure out the biology of, of aging pathways in worms, <laughs> nematodes, that can apply to humans. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> you got to start with, got to start small, but a lot, with a lot of that biology that applies to the C. elegans worm uh, is conserved in humans. And the famous... Uh, Red wine drug resveratrol seems to play a pathway through that CERT two mechanism. And anyway, we're I'm, I and many other people are looking forward to understanding what Calico is doing as 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 one element of 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 Google. Another super interesting piece is a recent acquisition of Google Health is uh, DeepMind. And DeepMind Health team has now been integrated. DeepMind is a company that started in in the United Kingdom out of London that has really pioneered using big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence in a whole number of interesting ways from many have heard of, 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 of DeepMind training uh, to, to beat the best champions of Go, you know, which is a very challenging game. Uh, yeah. Something that we thought was to be impossible, well beyond chess. Um, they've also applied AI machine learning to look at the back of the eyeball, the retina, which is sort of a fingerprint, you know, the windows of the eye to the soul, where the retina is a bit of a window into our health. A good ophthalmologist can take a peek at your retina and go, wow, it looks like you have hypertension or other problems. Um, and now applying machine learning, we can take pictures of thousands of retinas and now compare that to the medical record of the patient, their blood pressure, their sex, their age, their weight. And now they've been able to train up that system to the point where it can take a picture of a retina completely blinded and be able to guess or tell within a couple of years the age of that individual, their sex, their likelihood of having a stroke or a heart attack within the next few months. Um, 
if they have something called diabetic retinopathy, which is quite common in diabetic patients, are they going to have a, a, a good course or a relatively severe one? So it might change your upfront therapy. Uh, and now they have taken that technology into clinics and hospitals in rural India, where you don't have many available diagnostic tools. Um, so we're seeing sort of this evolution of how even on your smartphone as an eye examining device can combine with machine learning and AI to make a big difference for diagnostics and therapy. The Google engine or the DeepMind engine has also been applied in intensive care units where you have tons of data coming at you. It's overwhelming. You know, when I was running in intensive care units, you have this big piece of paper with all the vital signs charted out by the nurse. Now that's a little more digital, but still you need to synthesize that in the human mind, which is has limited capacity. Now they, for one example, have been able to predict who's going to have renal failure, acute renal failure, which often happens in, in the intensive care unit, sometimes 48 hours before it would otherwise have been picked up. So you get early proactive warning. To and for renal failure, that means your kidneys are failing? Kidneys are shutting down or they have a risk of shutting down. That's one of the side effects of often being a ventilated patient in an intensive care unit or have, after having a certain set of drugs or other elements. We're learning what's going to make someone at super high risk for renal failure. And that's another sort of proactive example. They've even mined medical record data and admission data to, it sounds a bit uh, dystopian, when someone's admitted to a hospital, what's their likelihood of dying? And if you admit someone with a certain set of characteristics and they have a high risk, let's say they're eight or nine out of the 10 spectrum, you might pay extra attention to them early and give them a much better chance of survival. The interview with Larry and Sergey was 20 years ago, and their their goal was to have a Googleplex of information. And in their in their description, a Googleplex that's a number larger than the number of molecules in the universe. So we're talking a huge number. It seems like it's even bigger than that. The information that is being generated, collected, you know, all of this stuff. It's just huge, and it's more than just a whole lot of facts that you can search. This really is sort of the big bang of information. I, I really feel like I can't get my hands around it. I can't understand how it's all coming, and I don't think anybody can. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, reams and reams of data, whether it's from your MRI machine, your genome, your Internet of Things house, uh, your behaviorome, uh, to then turn that big data into information that can be made sense of by the patient, by the doctor, by the pharma company, by our hospital system, and then take that information and make it clinically actionable so that we can not wait to have the heart attack or the stroke or the cancer or the pandemic, but we can find it super early. Um, and, and that's part of the big challenge of this big information era or big data era. And part of what Google has done is now make data and information much more accessible, which is enabling, you know, they bought a company called Kaggle, which you might know that was running data. Kaggle, Kaggle K-A-G-G-L-E, which, um, which would enable data scientists to run data challenges because now you can find the information and now you can glean new or find the data and glean new information and potential solutions from that. So we're kind of in this era of starting to hack the data and crowdsource it in new ways. And Google certainly enabled that. You know, one big other challenge in, in healthcare is obviously mental health. One area that Verily is even going into is the mental health space, starting to look at our behaviorome. How are you using your smartphone? How are you typing? What might your voice be? Um, what is your voice assistant seeing what you're doing? And start even providing, hopefully, early guidance to prevent a mental health issue, um, all the way to, you know, providing fitness tools or something called Google Fit, which is a bit of a health coach that they're evolving. So, you know, we're really entering this this digital age, and I think we're still at the infancy, but if we were to look forward, you know, we're 20 years into Google now, 20 years into the future, 
we're going to have sort of this, whether it's a Google health assistant or one from Amazon <laughs> or, or whomever, hopefully it's not branded as a, as a, as a big company moniker, but a bit of a health bubble around us. I can't imagine that Google isn't coming up with some very original approaches to addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, I think what Google and other tech companies are collaborating with, including Apple, they're playing together, which they usually don't, is to start leveraging our mobile devices for you know, pretty old-fashioned public health. Many listeners have heard the term contact tracing, which is how we used to do public health, or we still try to in the setting of an epidemic or pandemic. You have a patient who has developed coronavirus, you want to isolate them, put them into quarantine, track how they're doing, but also do the contact tracing. Who are they near? Who are they sitting next to at the Your park? phone knows. Right. So that <laughs> our phone knows. So it's um, often called contact tracing. It's actually probably more applicable to be called um, exposure notification. So we're here in the studio. And let's say, uh, Moira, unfortunately, in two days, you develop symptoms and you test positive for COVID-19. I got uh, it from you. If both are out, let's say you're oh, on an no, Android I phone. That up. <laughs> it, uh, you didn't get it from me. If you got it, uh, if you had an Android phone uh, running uh, Google, and I have my iPhone, which I do, and they both have this system that's rolling out um, potentially in in the spring, May or June of 2020, uh, our phones would sort of talk to each other. And if you opted in, because there's privacy concerns, to say that you want to be part of this program, and you developed a positive test, and that test was recorded, I would get a ping and say, because hey, you were near somebody that had po- that tested positive. You may need to self-quarantine or maybe get tested yourself. And so that's going to hopefully build this sort of big data map of who and where folks are sick, enable public health authorities to respond in the big picture, but also now individuals to, to, to feel safer when they get out there and to then know if they may have been around someone who may have exposed them. So Google is playing a key role and partnering with Apple and other tech folks to to build a system into our operating systems. And there's still a lot of debate about opting in and data privacy, um, but that may be part of our route back to some level of normalcy going forward. Thanks for coming in, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.